I'm Marlo Higgins, and I've spent nearly four decades as an entrepreneur building boundaries around time and energy. I am captivated by stories of creating that mythical balance between priorities and success without the guilt and fear of missing out. I'm a to-the-point business coach that helps start a company, rebrand another, and launch my own. Now I'm running a thriving online brand with the white space in my calendar to spend time with my family, nurture my soul, and create an impact in our world. Are you dreaming of striking a balance between a thriving business and a joyful life? It is possible, and it starts with you. Get out your field notes, and let's tap into Peaceful Achievers, inspiring you to create a vision, level up your skills, and show you how to set boundaries that support the life you desire. This is 22 Minutes to Having It All. All right, this is Marlo, your host of the 22 Minutes to Having It All podcast. Okay, are you guys enjoying these episodes as much as we are? Oh my gosh, Team Marlo has been moving mountains behind the scenes. We started in January of this year, so January 2021. You know, just really taking a look at the brand. We're going to be 10 years old. We're going to cross that in October of this year, October 3rd to be exact. And, you know, we're always looking at ways to ensure that we add value and quality and all these things. Now, it's funny if you've been listening to the episodes, if you are following us and you're part of the evolution of, you know, switching from the 22 motivational minute episodes to 22 minutes to having it all, you'll notice some of those episodes with Hap Klopp. Jim Cathcart, Ali Mink, those were all non-quality episodes. Okay. The content was great, but you can hear the audio sound. And that's what I'm speaking. There's, you know, this is the third iteration of this podcast because when we went through the second phase, that was an intention of ours. We wanted to be really value-based. We wanted really good sound quality. We wanted greater bandwidth. And so if you haven't listened back, I mean, you'll immediately witness as you listen to those episodes, we launched six episodes just recently with the relaunch of this new platform, and you're going to hear the difference in sound quality. So anyway, just wanted to uh, say, you know, right there is a witness of growth. And I don't, I mean, yeah, I cringe a little bit with that, but I also go, look how far we've come. That is the way when you continue to sustain a brand, stay motivated, you know, it's those little things that make all the difference. So, so here I am. I want to introduce this episode. This is Graham Keen. Now, Graham and I have a bit of synergy. I don't know, just kind of love the fella. <laughs> I think it stems from his accent. Of course, he's from the UK. So who cannot love those types of accents? You're going to hear that in this episode. But he talks about his massive experience. I mean, he was in finance, he served in law enforcement, and then he made this really big shift to business psychology. Now, Graham focuses on evidence-based business performance. Now, evidence-based is a big thing. So he's taking not the rhetoric or the thought process of business performance, but he's actually saying this is evidence-based around positive psychology. Now, it's a relationship between positivity and high performance. Now, anybody that knows me knows that I love both of those things. I always like to say we have to strengthen our positive optimistic muscle. That's why I created the success boarding strategy. And I launched that early on in my career as I was you know, really working with performers and getting people across the finish line because I know the power of positivity. And it's like going to the gym, we've got to strengthen those muscles. And I love high performance. Now, high performance, I believe in getting an outcome, getting a result and not rewarding mediocrity. And so always being in that top 2% of being a high performer, but then consistently being able to hold yourself in that space. 
So you're going to get a lot from this episode today. So I will tell you, Graham by far is one of the best storytellers that I've known. He gives you some in-depth stories around the experience of people within the psychology world. So he's an entrepreneur. He comes to us from Sheffield, England, out of the UK, like I said. And so anyway, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Graham. Now I'm going to ask you to go a step further. Please send a review with these episodes because we want to know What did you learn from that episode? What was the thing that sparked your interest? What was the most impactful part of that conversation that you enjoyed? So go out there, subscribe. Please continue to leave reviews of this podcast. The only purpose for that is to make sure that other people can find us just like you have found us here. So, all right, enjoy the episode. All right. Welcome back to 22 Minutes to Having It All podcast. And today we welcome Graham Keene. Now, Graham is an evidence-based business performance enhancer. He's a positive psychologist and a best-selling author. We're going to dig deep into what is positive psychology and uh, and Graham's take on, on being positive. So Graham, welcome to today's podcast episode. Hi, Marla. It's a joy to be here. Thank you for asking me. Absolutely. I mean, you really are passionate about delivering lasting change and profitable growth and well-being to entrepreneurial companies. Graham, give us some insight. What has gotten you so interested in this area? And tell us specifically what positive psychology is. So I'm interested because it's a blend of my the two halves of my own career. So my early career was as an accountant with Ernst & Young, and then as a CFO in three national and international listed companies, and uh, subsequently in corporate finance. I then switched to business psychology and positive psychology specifically. So anything which enables people who are you know close to my previous world running companies uh trying to keep shareholders happy which blends from there with my current world which is all about understanding the relationship between positivity and high performance and understanding how current management science informs the strategies that are worthwhile pursuing anything which gets it actually has my interest and positive psychology specifically was founded as many listeners will know by uh, a very eminent research psychologist in the US called Professor Martin Seligman, who is a University of Pennsylvania professor. And he was, when this all started, he was the president of the APA, the American Psychological Association. So if you're a psychologist, there's nobody more eminent currently alive than than Martin Seligman. What happened to him was that his five-year-old daughter called him out in the garden one day and said, Daddy, remember how I had to learn to stop whining last year. You, you'll, you'll gather from this story that she's a prodigious child, very early developer. Um, well, if I can learn to stop whining, Daddy, can you learn to stop being such a grouch? And that rather brought him up short and made him think about psychology as a profession. And he acknowledged that she was right, that he was a grumpy, pessimistic individual, more often than not. And not only that, all of his friends and colleagues in the profession were exactly the same. And that made him reflect poignantly, that psychology, since it was founded in the late 19th century by people like James, that we kind of lost our way. It used to be all about uh, fulfilling one's potential, about finding a life of meaning, about well-being, about happiness, about expressing everything that you've got in yourself. It used to be about, you know, if you like, the psychology of doing well and everything working. And it, and, and it became derailed by people who were extraordinarily interested in mental 
illness, like Freud, of course, and became the science of what happens when things go wrong psychologically. And that inevitably leads people down a more, a less happy route, a more pessimistic route. So he decided right then and there, because he's a man who thinks in very, on a very large scale, that he was going to change psychology. Ka-ching. I mean, what a wonderful vision to have. And so he d- he resolved to become just as big an authority on happiness as he was on depression um, and started the research going. Um, eight years later, he thought he'd got enough of a body of research, replicated uh, evidence-based research from a whole range of universities to actually begin the process of change. And he did that by educating what he calls the vanguard. And the vanguard was the first 1,000 positive psychologists in the world. And I was one of them. And uh, he educated us in positive psychology, which now as a science and, if you like, as a movement, has the, the number one goal of improving human well-being. Full stop. Yeah, all of that plays into it now. And I'm just enamored by the fact that you put evidence based into that performance enhancer. Talk about what makes, you know, because when we're talking psychology, right, that's kind of hard to to make, I don't know, into more of a tangible item. When you say the evidence based, talk a little bit more about that. So how that helps us with uh, in performance. Well, I think one of the things that people don't understand about our research scientists is that they are even more aware of the traps that one can fall into in conducting research than the, your average layman is. So, you know, quite often when you're uh, speaking, there'll be some uh, switched on and kind of smarty boots person in the audience who will say, yeah, well, that's all very well. But, you know, showing that one thing is related to another thing doesn't prove causality. So one of the things that, uh, that evidence-based means is, look, professional researchers know better than anyone that there's a, that you have to prove causality. So, you know, if there's a relationship between uh, middle-aged white males and a high incidence of myocardial infarction, yeah, is that purely a coincidence or does something about being a white middle-aged male cause the heart attacks? You know, and it turns out, yeah, it is. But what it is is actually, you know, obesity and bad lifestyle that causes the causes the heart attack. So, proving causality is really very, very important. So, when you're when you're conducting research as a psychologist, you come up with a hypothesis that there's potentially a link between A and B. You then construct an experiment to measure how A. whether there is that relationship between A and B, you, you create some inputs and you measure some outputs. It might be um, asking people, for instance, if you're interested in the science of happiness, it might be asking severely clinically depressed people every night to find three things that they showed masterfulness on in that day, even if it's just opening the door to a stranger, and to then conduct a couple of further activities in relation to that. And then using well-established clinical metrics for measuring how depressed people are and seeing over a period what happens to their level of depression. Um, that's a specific experiment, a segment experiment, which has actually produced a cure rate for severely depressed people, seriously depressed people, of 94%. Now, that's that's one of the big elephants in the room. That's not out there. People outside the professions don't know about that because everybody is in the habit of taking pills that, that, that make you feel a little bit happier when you've got clinical depression. But those pills have a very marginal improvement over what a placebo will do for you anyway. And the best pill on the market in terms of cure rate of seriously depressed people has a cure rate of 62%. 
62% compared to uh, certain positive psychology interventions of 94%. So that's the sort of thing that I'm interested in getting out there, although my personal practice is all about corporate performance rather than about people's mental health. Yes. But here's the thing too, Graham, I question, you know, can we strengthen that positive muscle? Mm. Yes, you can. What a lovely question. That's an incredibly perceptive question. Mm. I'm going to answer it in a, in a slightly uh, roundabout way. So we all know, don't we, all of us, we all know that the world is full of people who have wanted to change something about themselves for years or decades and have never succeeded, despite lots of effort, lots of different strategies, lots of longing and yearning and wanting, and lots of hard work, they haven't been able to do it. Whether it's somebody trying to become more even-tempered if they know that they can get angry too easily, or whether it's somebody who wants to change their body weight up or down. You know, lots of, lots of people want to bulk up with the muscle and lots of people want to lose lots of body fat. But the world is full of people, particularly that last one, just billions of us that have wanted to actually do something of that, about that and not been able to. And the reason that we have not been able to succeed is because one of the big um, misunderstandings about the way human psychology works, that is absolutely endemic. Like, you know, if, if you stop the average man or woman in the street and ask them, how do you change your habits? How do you change your behavior? They're going to say something like willpower and character. And that is a big untruth. That is not how human beings change. Unfortunately, we're seduced into thinking that it is because there are so many stories out there about people who have done exactly that. And we know from our own experience that there have been occasions where we have tried to force ourselves to do something, whether it's to study to pass an exam or whether it's to achieve a qualification in sport or, in, or, or professionally. We've forced ourselves to do it and the willpower seems to work. The, the reason it's taken us so long, our glorious species, the reason it's taken us thousands and thousands of years to understand what's actually going on is that the process that's actually going on is unconscious. And even when you feel you are succeeding through the use of willpower, the mechanism that's actually delivering the change that you've been targeting is an unconscious one, and it's called cognitive behavioral conditioning. And so the way to actually change anything is about, very crudely, it's about controlling the inputs into your brain and making sure that the inputs that you put into your brain are consistent with the outputs you want to come out of yourself as a person. So specifically, in improving positivity, it's very simple. I call it PIPO. It's positives in, positives out. So if a person wants to be more positive, more optimistic, more hopeful, because there are genuine health and success and performance benefits to doing to, to doing exactly that. Again, evidence-based research results. If you want to do that, the thing to do is to cut out all of the negative programming, conditioning, and consumption that you possibly can, and to ramp up all of the positive inputs that you possibly can. Clearly, there are limits to what is reasonable and what is responsible. Quite often when people hear this, they think, okay, well, I'll stop watching the news then. That's not cool because we need to be informed because we need to be engaged citizens. So cutting yourself off from what's going on in the world might, might produce some benefits for you as an individual, but soon you'll find, find that being disconnected has a price. So the way to, do, to handle that, for instance, is to say, okay, 15 minutes news a day, that'll tell me what's going on. 
but I'm not going to watch a two-hour documentary. I'm not going to, you know, to listen to the news every half an hour when I'm driving across the country, etc. Okay. So is it positive self-talk? I mean, is that something, Graham, that can get us into that space and controlling the inputs into the brain, would you say? Hang on, Marlo. Of course, it, it, it is. It absolutely is. There, there are a couple of things to say about that, however. The, the, the first thing to say is when I'm talking about, you know, positive inputs, so your self-talk is, is perhaps the most pervasive, the, the, the largest input to our positivity. That's the first thing. The second thing to say is that self-talk that you construct to try and make yourself more positive, which is clearly a lie, which you don't believe in, has been shown to be completely worthless. That, that adds nothing. So that's one of the differences between positive psychology and the old-fashioned positive thinking. Positive thinking had a huge amount to offer it, but some of its claims were clearly bogus. You know, not everybody can be anything. <laughs> not everybody can yeah. be everything. That's clearly bogus. And one of one of the other things that it didn't understand was that was that uh, positive affirmations, positive self-talk that you know in your heart are wrong or dishonest or untrue have no effect. So you know, one of the things that disappointed people who tried to use positive thinking was was that simple truth. So you have to find a way of of telling yourself a truth which is aspirational, which is you know, which is a stretch um, that you actually uh, can believe in. And then it, it it will, and there's um and, and and actually we all have in our in our our heads this this voice that's constantly going on a commentary that we run that happens unconsciously in our mind a commentary about ourselves how we're navigating life what we like what we deserve how good we are what we're getting right what we're getting wrong, and and sometimes that that. That voice is very supportive and constructive, and sometimes that voice is very destructive and critical. And it's learning how to turn the critical one off and turn the positive coach on. If anybody's interested in that, there's a, on the market at the moment. At the moment, there is an absolutely stunningly good book by Professor Ethan Cross called Chatter. That's the one to get on that. Excellent. Yeah, it's fascinating too. And I, I think, you know, what you're doing and, and having that positive self-talk, I think you're absolutely right. I love that you're, you know, you have to anchor it in a truth. And because if you're not believing it, and that's when you've got to believe it to, you know, and I think that's that missing ingredient of really understanding. Now, you also have some intake on, you know, from a psychology standpoint, you can, you know, you've got a position where if you want to be kind or make money, Take us into that that conversation, Graham, uh-huh. because I know it's a big one for you. This is one of my favorite soapboxes. I don't know if soapbox translates across the US, but it means it's a box you stand on, uh, I don't know, and some public space and start telling the world what you believe. So my soapbox is about the misunderstanding that people have that you, and I'm thinking particularly now about entrepreneurs and about people in leadership roles within organizations, particularly the senior leaders in corporates, where there are still a lot of people who believe that you have to make a decision when you're deciding what your strategy and culture is going to be, whether you prioritize the well-being, the happiness of your people, how how much authenticity, integrity you bring to the way you treat them, or whether actually you have to prioritize how much money you make, how, how you reduce costs, how you can expand your margins, and how you can just make more damn money. So it comes down to something very simple, which is, do I prioritize making profit, or do I prioritize treating people 
well. And that's a false dichotomy because what we now understand, and there is an avalanche of evidence over the last 20 years which demonstrates this beyond any doubt, is that the way to maximize the profit that an organization is delivering to its its leaders and shareholders is actually to maximize the happiness and well-being of the people that form that organization. So there's, there's no conflict. There's only one choice to be made. And that, that hypothesis and how to deliver it and how to do it is the central theme of my own book, Positive Leaders, Positive Change, which talks specifically about how one can set about delivering well-being and profitability not only in harmony, but actually in synergy, so that they both, they, they both, you know, the sum of the two is greater than the value of the parts. I think that's fascinating too. You know, so how do we maximize happiness? So anybody who's listening to this, there's a high level CEO and he's very in tuned to what you're sharing. Um, how can we do that inside an organization to maximize the happiness of our people? Well, I think that what many things, and of course, I, I would say this, wouldn't I? Because this is how this is how my business earns its keep. But there are a lot of things that organisations can do for themselves, and there are some things that organisations do for themselves. And I think any experienced CEO knows, knows the, the truth in that, and probably part of how they got where they are is discerning where it's necessary to bring in externals and where it isn't. But I think the the essence of it, we come back to that hypo thing, that positive in, positive out thing, because positivity delivers happiness and delivers well-being. It's, I'm simplifying a fairly complex relationship there. But if you can create a positive, human-valuing, uh, human-loving culture, if you go beyond treating people well to uh, and beyond empowering people to actually fully emancipating people within the organization. Uh, in, in that sort of situation, you start to be conditioning into people the very things that we need in order for their well-being to improve. And then when you, when you achieve through that a, a more you know, positive mental state, a more positive attitude within the organization. Lots of things happen. I have, I have a acronym, which is CREAMS, you know, spelt like the stuff that put in your coffee with a, with an S on the end, which are the six things that are delivered when human beings are in a positive emotional state. And they are creativity, resilience, emotional intelligence, analytical reasoning skills, motivation and self-esteem. Now, if you sit down and think for a moment about how many of those are critical to an individual's performance and contribution to the team, to the organization, whether you're looking at somebody who is a leader or somebody who is a, uh, a super sales professional, all of, all of those things are, are absolutely essential and part of it. So basically, it's about creating a, a culture where the conditioning that is being absorbed by everybody in the organization creates more and more of that. Now, that's like any other culture change intervention. You need to have strategy that will work. Now, the sad statistic is that 75% of all culture change initiatives fail. And, and Why is that? 
it, it's exact, thank you. It's exactly the same reason as why the world is full of people who failed to make personal changes. It's because, it's because corporations are laboring on the mis- under the misunderstanding that all you have to do in order to get your people to change how they think and how they behave, in other words, to change the culture, is tell them what you want of them. Now that that's wrong on 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 many levels. It comes from enlightened leaders who genuinely believe in their people and care for them. So it's natural to expect all I have to do is tell them what we want, and they will deliver it because we know that they love the organisation. But unfortunately, what it fails to recognise is that human beings cannot just change the way they behave and the way that they think through an act of will. It has to be gradually conditioned into them by actually putting all of our attention onto the inputs to the people rather than just asking them for more and more outputs. In fact, you know, one of one of the, the things that that, uh, that some people still don't get is that is that you know if you're a CEO and you're listening to this, your people know what's required culturally in your business, every bit as well as you do. They know it. You don't need to tell them. Um, I've done hundreds and hundreds of, of cultural surveys in organizations, and it always comes out the same way, that people know what's required and their opinions are aligned with yours. You probably want a bit more of it than them. That's the norm. Yeah, but they know what it is. So actually, when we just we tell them, we've got to be very careful they don't feel patronized because we're telling them what they already know. And particularly, if an organization does that thing of telling them one year and then a year, a year later, nothing much has changed. So somebody decides, oh, we'll tell them again then. So will you tell, when you tell them again, now you're really risking losing them because, you know, we've always known, we knew last year when you told us, we still know this year, you're going to disengage people through, through, through that because they're going to feel patronized. They're going to feel that you're disconnected from them, from their world. They're going to feel that they are being lectured rather than any real understanding. So the way we have to deliver that stuff is through a cognitive cognitive behavioral approach to cultural change, which then will work. Now, I'm going to say that again. It will then work. How do I know that? I know because I've been doing it for 24 years and I have exactly zero failures on my Mm. track record. That's impressive. That's impressive, Graham. Okay, so the cognitive behavioral change, you know, so how do we communicate that? Is this just something in what fashion is the most effective to be able to offer that knowledge on the regular? So it's not just like you're telling people what to do, but it just becomes what you do. There's a difference there. There is, there is a very big difference. So first of all, we acknowledge that everybody already knows what are the outputs and everybody wants it. And you, you may want to tweak that a bit. You may want to enroll them in a process of refining those things that are wanted. But what happens then is you, you need to teach them how to embed those new ways of thinking and behaving in themselves. You see, um, some very famous uh, theorists, I think Brucker is one of them, have, have, have said at some point that, that culture change is impossible. And, and they have a very, very good point. Changing organizations is extremely challenging. Changing individual people is much more straightforward and much easier. So the way to bring about cultural change is to teach every individual, every key individual, how to deliver the change in the way they think, feel, and behave themselves 
And then those changes aggregate across a corporation and become the cultural change that we're looking for. Now, that's one of the processes that you really need, certainly initially, to retain an external person on. Because if you get, I'm going to pick a name at random, um, Maria, uh, one of your senior sales managers, to stand up in front of a team of 50 sales professionals and say, right, I'm going to teach you now how to deliver every single behavioral change and thinking change in your life you want. And it goes like this. People are going to look at her and say, yeah, but I know you. I, I know what disappoints you about you. I know that you, you know, whatever the, the, uh, whatever the vulnerabilities are that you might share in the evening at sales conferences, people know about that. So you need to bring in an external uh, who, who can say, look, let's start by giving you the evidence in support of what we're going to ask you to do. That's going to show you the process. That's going to help you through the process. Let's partner you through it over a number of months. Let's give you some one-on-one -on -one attention and teach you how to do it. So you create your core of people. And then when you've done that and everybody's eyes and ears prick up and you've got their attention because they see the improvements and the changes in other, in other people, then you can go on to create and to train and to teach an ever-expanding cadre of internal champions of this cultural and behavioral change who then will be um, spreading the word, cascading it down through the organization in, in cultural change programs, in personal development programs, so that it's coming not from one uh, flawed individual, flawed like we all are, but it's coming from an organization that is an acknowledged international expert on delivering what we're looking at. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so how to think, feel, and behave. I think that's very, very powerful when you get everybody commanding in that in that core. And then, like you said, create that core of infusion into your organization because it just naturally oozes then into those departments, into, you know, everything that is happening. And I think that's very, very powerful. I, you know, I think a lot of organizations want that, Graham. You've seen it. That's your everyday life, right? And it takes time. And I think, you know, because we, it's not just a flip of a switch. We're human. And so I think a lot goes into, uh, into that behavioral change, but I think it's fascinating just to see and paint the picture of the power of that possibility for any organization. And immediately you can hear the sense of that turning into profits because when you have everybody firing off and they're very finest, I think just that in itself, it, it not only retains the people you have, it attracts others that want to be part of that. And that's why there is winning organizations out there. So kudos to you. This is absolutely fantastic. Okay, so we are coming into the close of our episode. Okay. I know our audience is like fascinated by this and want to learn more. But Graham, as the uh, podcast, 22 Minutes to Having It All, I just want to ask you kind of that one final question, you know, from the, from the shoes that you walk in, what does having it all mean to you, Graham Keen? Ooh, that's a goodie. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. And, I, I, and that's why we just, you know, it's that transparency, transparency of it. What does it mean to you? That's got me right between the eyes. There's only one way to answer that, and that's with, with complete honesty. So I was thinking when I was meditating a few days ago, and I was thinking, so I very much believe in one, one of the Buddhist teachings that we are not our emotions, and the way to stop being a slave to them, good or bad, is to 
spend time stepping back from from them and observing them rather than being them. So I thought, okay, so I, I believed that for a long time. So if I'm not my emotions, who am I? Who am I? And I think I am spirit, and I'm clearly body, and I am love, and I am well-being. So that got me thinking about the definition of well-being that positive psychologists use. Um, and it made me realize that the, the five things, so it's that the, if I can just positive emotions and the absence of negative ones, it's about getting into flow. It's about meaningful relationships. It's about there, there having been a reason why I was ever here. What is the meaning of my life? Uh, and it's about accomplishment. It's about, you know, achieving something. So those you bring those things together and you think, okay, that is actually more than a thing I want, well-being. That's not, that's not just something I want to add to my portfolio. That's actually my life. That is my life. So what I concluded is that well-being is not a thing that we can achieve. Well-being is actually who we are. Um, so for me, that's about... That's about what I, it's about my vocation, which is, which is what I do for a living. It's about my, you know, my family and my friends, and my clients and the people I teach. It's about, it's about that. But it's also about the other, the other parts of me. Like, you know, you, you know, Marlo, I'm a tenor and, uh, I, I sing with a very famous choir and, and that's a big part of me. So having it all for me is a combination of, of all of those things. And it, it's worth saying that what I, invite people to do when they go through a goal setting exercise, which everybody that passes through my hands does, is to say that one of the ways of framing how you feel about materialism is to decide that what you want to do is free yourself from negative emotions. And that includes negative emotions about money, which are complex, aren't they? There's, there's fear and there's passion and there's lust and there's anxiety and there's greed and if you can free yourself from the negative elements of that, if you can achieve a material position where you are free of the negative emotions about your material life, then that's a, a big thing. So, uh, Wow, Graham, that is the most poignant response that I've had to that specific question. And uh, it's total enlightenment for me because um, to me, having it all is peaceful achievement and yeah, peaceful is present, right? So we are present. We are here. We are now. It's you and I together. And there's a reason for it. There, There is a reason. And we don't even necessarily have to be having the answer to that specific reason, but just the awareness of just being present. And like you said, there's an achievement. There's something that will come from it. And um, so I think it's, yeah, I, I'm. it's very enlightening. So Graham, what? A, I love it. Thank you for answering. Back that. at you. I think that's a lovely, what you just said resonates very deeply. That's a super way of thinking about it. Peaceful achievement. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm so <laughs> I mean, we all, yes. I, and, and it's again, you know, to your cord, it's, it's how we, we're showing up and taking vacation. It's just literally everything in which we do. It's, you know, what we do is an extension of who we are. There's not a switch that we turn on or off. We just have to be in that being space, which um, that well-being is so powerful. Okay. So we're coming into the close. I could keep this conversation forever, but where can we find you? How can our audience connect to you, Graham? So they can go to positive 
profitabilitycompany.co.uk. You'll be able to find me through there, or you can you can email me at graham.k at positiveprofitabilitycompany.co.uk. And I would love to hear from you. Hell, I don't mind. My mobile, plus four four triple seven one six six seven six one six. And I'm delighted to hear from anyone. <laughs> straight to Sheffield, England. So that's just yeah. fantastic. I absolutely love this, Graham. You're an absolute delight. So you can also find more in our details about Graham Keen in the show notes and visit our website at marlohiggins.com. Thank you for listening today, Graham. You're an absolute delight. Thank you for being our guest. Thank you. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Did you enjoy this conversation as much as I did? If you're looking for more conversations like these, be sure to subscribe and please leave a review of the podcast. Subscribing and leaving a review helps it show up on your phone every time a new episode is released and leaving a review helps other people like you find us so they can get the help they need so they can live their best life. Also, subscribe to our weekly email on our website at marlohiggins.com. This is the place that we share insider tips with our audience and drop polarizing insights with you. Remember, the road to success is better with friends. So be sure to share this episode to help all of you reach your goals together. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, success is universally desired, personally defined, and always within reach.